Hey everybody, when you hear that music, you know it's time for another great episode of On the Lighter Side of Baseball. And I'll tell you what, this was a great weekend, and I predicted it would be a great weekend. Not that the greatness of this weekend is fully attributable to me. I mean, I'm not that significant. Although I anticipated as a result of the lockout, uh, we would have a spectacular wild card weekend. And some people are moaning and groaning. I mean, if it was the best of nine, I suppose the Mets would be griping. Uh, Buck Showalter, I thought I was going to cry like 17 times. Give it up, Buck. You're probably making 10 million a year just to manage that bunch of wackos. And uh, so they're gone. The Mets are gone. And I, I did an analysis, and we'll get into that with our guest. We're going to have Kip Horsberg, who is a friend of mine and a friend, a good friend of Dave Nelson's from the Texas Ranger days, from the Cleveland Indian days. And he's been uh, um, out of professional baseball uh, on the management side for quite a while. But we'll catch up to him because he went to both ball games in Cleveland this weekend and saw the Guardians on game one on the strength of a home run by Jose Ramirez, who you'll remember knocked one out of the ballpark and almost cost the Chicago Cubs the World Series in Game 6 of the 2016 World Series. Well, he's still with the Tribe, although now they're the Guardians. And then uh, a rookie in the 15th inning of Game number 2, uh, Gonzalez, I believe that's his name, hit a home run. We'll talk to Kip. Had to be exciting. I'm sure he stayed a long time to watch the end of that game. Unlike <laughs> the best fans in baseball, give me a friggin' break. They've never been the best fans in baseball. They continue to hype it as the best baseball town in baseball. The ESPN broadcasters, the Fox guys, you know, when it was Joe Buck, goodbye, Joe. St. Louis is not that great a baseball town. Now they finally fill up the ballpark, but boy, were the Phillies unloaded in the eighth inning, I believe. May have been the ninth. I think it was the ninth for a record uh, comeback from a two to nothing deficit. They took the lead seven to two, and the fans, like rats jumping off of a sinking ship, abandoned. Bush three or whatever the name of the ballpark is these days. And a little bit of the red was filtering out of the ballpark. They should have stuck around. It was a pretty exciting finish. And it had one of the all-time great last bats, not Ted Williams great, where he hit a home run in his last AB of his major league career. The splendid splinter, Ted Williams, the Boston Red Sox. No, but um, Yadier Molina who I cursed for years and years because the dude just did 700 in Wrigley Field. Uh, he finally is going to retire, and he got to hit his last at bat, and uh, he went down fighting. And, I mean, here's a guy. He looked like he was well on his way to my kind of retirement. Um, you know, the, the nickname Pudge went to Ivan Ivan Rodriguez, but but uh, Yadier could, could be Pudge too, man. He kind of... Uh, lost control of his, uh, but he could still hit. He could probably hit next year. And so could probably Pujols and Wainwright can probably pitch too. They could have like an old geriatric team. That'd be kind of fun, fun for the Cubs, because maybe they could beat the Cardinals. Maybe the Brewers could beat the Cardinals. How in the world the Brewers just laid an egg and let the Cardinals run away with the 
Now, that's not going to be as easy next year because they're not going to play 18 or 19 games against their division rivalry. The schedule is going to be more spread out so that everybody faces every team at least once. Okay, so that is going to avoid the Cardinals playing the Cubs for 19 games and the Brewers playing the Cubs for 19 games and the Reds for 19 games and the Pirates for 19 games. I mean, between the Pirates, the Reds, and the Cubs, if they're right there, that's what, 50 victories if, if you're mediocre. And so anyway, so okay, I got off the track of the uh, playoff game because I'm so excited for my guests who will be here in a little while. Anyway, the Guardians and the and the uh, uh, Rays squared off on the battle of the miserable payrolls, and um, they had the two lowest payrolls in the playoffs. The Phillies and the Cardinals squared off, and the Phillies swept. The Guardians swept. So those two were swept sweeps. One by the home team, Guardians. One by the road team, the Philadelphia Phillies. Not my favorite team. Not a big Bryce Harper fan. I hated to see Giardi go the way of the Buffalo. But one of our uh, guests on the podcast, John Wathen, former Major League Baseball player with the Kansas City Royals, former manager of the Omaha Royals. Woohoo! Let's hear it for the uh, Omaha Royals. Haven't talked about them for a while. And uh, a former manager of the Kansas City Royals. Um, his son is the third base coach, and we've talked a little bit about him. I would like to get Dusty on the show. Maybe I can do that. I'll work on that. That'd be fun. That'd really be fun. Third base coach. He managed to stick around through the Rob Thompson era, the new manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. 59-year-old guy gets his first job managing, and he's going to the division series. And the Phillies will take on the Braves, who just trounced him. So that probably means the Phillies will win. Sorry to my Braves fans out there. I know you guys are out there. Love you. Um, anyway, so that's one. That Those are two games. The other two, the uh, we talked a little bit about the Mets. They laid a big major egg against uh, the San Diego Padres. I got some big Padre fans out there, and this goes out to the Padre fans, Bob. I know you're excited. Holy cow, the pods are going to have a playoff game at Petco Park coming up pretty quick. So that's exciting. And so then the final game, and this is really maybe the, you know, I'm not, does anybody care about the Toronto Blue Jays? I mean, they got some really, Vlad Jr., Dante Bichette, and then all sorts of guys I've never heard of, and a team where you have to get a vaccination to go play them. Um they lost to a low payroll team, the Seattle Mariners. So you have three road teams winning. And by the fact that they were the road teams, they had a lower um, payroll or a lower seed, sorry, and a lower payroll. But the uh, their seed was inferior to the home team. The Cardinals won the Central Division, which is a joke. I don't know why, but it's a joke. And uh, they lost their home game. The Mets tied with the Braves, but by virtue of the lockout and the settlement, uh, there is no playoff for the tie. You get the home field advantage determined based upon um, who owned the advantage. And the Braves beat the Mets more times, so they got it. And so they had the same record. Braves get a few days off in a division series against the Phillies. The Mets play three games. 
Scherzer gets the crap beat out of him. DeGrom comes back with a really good win. And then Musgrove with the Padres just wiped the Mets. One hit. It is the first time a starting pitcher in a playoff game ever, ever in the post-Don, in in the post-era from Don Larson. Anyway, seven innings, one hit. Now, we all know Larson went nine innings and no hit. But, I mean, seven innings, one hit, pretty good. Pretty good baseball. So the Padres go on to face the Dodgers. So that sets up some interesting uh, financial matchups. And we'll talk to Kip a little bit about that. He's kind of a business guy. He's a real business guy. Now, interestingly, to take a step back, during the negotiations of the lockout, and remember how this was, maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but the executive committee of the Major League Players Association is in part made up of really rich baseball players, okay, like Scherzer and Verlander and guys that they don't have anything to do with the rank and file guys. They don't have anything to do with the 25%, with the 60% of the Cleveland Indian pay, Cleveland Guardians payroll, which was low, minimum. Interesting, isn't it? So the owners proposed a basement which I've been squawking about since I started this podcast and squawked about it before with my good buddy, Nelly, a basement. Everybody has to pay at least the minimum of the average last year. So that'd be about 120 million. If that were the case, the uh, teams in the bottom six, the A's at 61 million, the O's at 64 million, the guardians at 82 million, the pirates at 85 million, the Marlins that at 96 would have to at least get up to 120, as would the Rays. And so it'd be more fair. Instead, the Guardians versus the Yankees, there's only a $180 million discrepancy. That's that funny or what? Anyway, it's a great, it's a great uh, time of the year. And what's great about it is next year, hopefully baseball will be even more exciting when there's no shift. You can't throw the first, second base or first base all the time. You know, the new rules. We've talked about those. Okay. Buddy of mine and a frequent listener of this show has been going to the Arizona Fall League. And I said, hey, how's the pitch clock work? And he goes, I didn't even realize there was a pitch clock. You get so caught up now. The players get so conditioned in the minor leagues to pitching. Now the pitch clock count was a little different in the minor leagues. It's going to be even quicker in the major leagues. So the pitcher will have 15 seconds to throw the ball. Now that, you know, that's going to make a big difference to Mr. Darvish, who pitched brilliantly against the Mets in game number one and one. And then Mr. Musgrove. I mean, Musgrove was so good that Bucky boy, Bucky O, Bucky Showalter, Finally, I, I mean, if he was going to do this carnival stunt, why, why wait till you're down six to nothing? Um, he comes out, and, and of course, he managed to say how he loves Bob Melvin, how he respects his teams. You know, he never does anything wrong. Melvin plays him. And, and I, I guess that's true. I mean, he look what he did with the A's. I mean, if you can win with the A's, how in the world can you not win with the Padres? And that's going to be a good series because the Dodgers have dominated. Maybe not this time. Maybe not. Their pitching's a little suspect on the Dodgers' side. Uh, but anyway, uh, Show Walter comes out and 
uh, gets all the umpires around, all six umpires, playoff number of umpires, and he says, hey, I think this guy's spin ratios up. I, and it certainly can't be because he's good. It must be because he's doing something illegal. Hmm. So anyway, uh, they, they didn't strip search the guy. They didn't drag him into the locker room. Now, remember, after every inning or two, the umpire runs over and shakes hands with the guy and rubs his hand to feel if he's got any pine tar on there. There hadn't been any problem with him during the year. With money. It just was a good spin rate, higher than Hader, who throws 100 on an, on an easy day. So the umpire starts like gr- aggressively f- sticking his hands all over Musgrove's ears. It was the damnedest thing I've ever seen. I mean, there's some earwax in there probably, and maybe a couple of hairs he hadn't trimmed, but there sure as hell wasn't any foreign substance in there. I mean, you're not talking about Gaylord Perry rubbing up the rosin with a little Vaseline on his gray hair. No, this, this kid can pitch and he's underrated and he just shut down the Mets and that was great. So, that was fun. Kyle Ravitch does a pretty nice job broadcasting that. Not great, but he did have an interesting point. Most of these guys don't have the intestinal fortitude to bring it up. But Kyle Ravitch was talking about, and then I later saw a, a tweet from somebody about the same subject, that, hey, how come you're doing the broadcast and where are the local TV guys? We want our local TV guys doing these shows. We don't want the, you know, Alex Rodriguez and the Yankees and uh, TV guy doing the TV game for the, uh, for the Phillies. And, and we don't want Shrimp Scampi and Doug Glanville from the Cubs doing the broadcast. Although I got to say, Scampi was better. Every 15 seconds, he didn't talk about the percentages of the, the number of times the second baseman is going to pick his nose before he rubs his crotch. That was in and of itself, Scampy kind of only did a little bit of graph on percentages, but the guy's just a freak on percentage. Glanville, they needed to turn his mic up. There was a, um, well, Jessica, and I can't remember her last name. She's good. I mean, she ought to be on every broadcast, and I'm not looking forward to Bob Costas and John Smoltz. I'm not looking forward to Joe Buck's replacement, Joe whatever his name is, but I am not going to be negative because I got two favorite teams going. All right. So for you guys to say, Hey man, you know, you're kind of down. The Cubs aren't in it. Well, that's true. And Rossi's pissed. And when Rossi's pissed, that's a good sign because he isn't going anywhere as for a while as their Cubs manager. And he said he really is not enjoying looking at the playoffs from the sidelines. So, you know, the Cubs have about 200 million to throw around. Do it. There's some big-time free agents, and we'll talk about that later on. But Nolan Arenado's a free agent. Verlander's a free agent. Scherzer's a free agent. Rondon's a free agent. There's a bunch of guys. Spend the damn money and get a good team, okay? Justify what you charge season ticket holders, okay? All right. So uh, we've been going a little while, and uh, this is fun. We're getting ready for uh, Kip to join us. So we're going to take a little break. Tyler's going to play a little music. And when we come back, uh, we are going to have our good friend Kip Horsberg on the line. So stay tuned. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple iTunes, maybe my Facebook page if it hadn't been deleted. And uh, wherever you get your um, podcast. Hey, if you can't get 
this on your podcast, send me your podcast information and uh, where you get them and we'll get on there. Um, of course, that would be hard if you can't listen to them. You can't know that I just said that, but that's okay. Uh, because we are not going anywhere. The playoffs are going to be picking up steam on Tuesday and we are ready to go. So we will uh, be back in a few. In the meantime, uh, listen to some great tunes. Hey, everybody, we're back on the lighter side of baseball. And uh, as I promised you, we're joined by Kip Horsberg, a friend of mine and a great friend of Dave Nelson's. And Dave is, uh, is the reason we have this podcast, Kip. So I know that you and I have spoken over the years, not as much as I'd like to, but Dave Nelson has been kind of the common bond that, that has uh, led to you being on the show today. And I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I know you must be tired after watching The Guardians. But uh, we can talk a little bit about that. But tell the listeners a little bit about how I'm, how I'm jealous of you and why, because your involvement in professional baseball. Well, in the eighth grade, I uh, came to the stark realization that uh, I was never going to play Major League Baseball, which I would love to have done. And I uh, set forth on a goal of becoming a Major League executive. No kidding, at that age and uh, pointed my entire school career and ultimately my college life to uh, figuring out the best way to get that done. And um, had some wonderful uh, travel experiences um, around the country, meeting people, uh, networking before that word was in vogue, but with uh, meeting a lot of people in the game. And one day in... um, college. I went to a school called Bowdoin College in uh, Brunswick, Maine. And I decided to go down to Baltimore for the Indian series. I was a, had seen hundreds of games as a youth in Cleveland, Ohio, where I'm from. And I went down to uh, Baltimore and got tickets next to the dugout. It was seat in the old days. You remember the dugouts were right up against the box seats at the level of the field? Absolutely. So I was sitting against the the fence that was the uh, chain link fence uh, that usually was at the end of one dugout. And this is on the right field side of the dugout and sitting next to me in the dugout while I was in the stands was Dave Nelson, who was then a rookie, came up uh, and was not playing that day. He was just sitting against the um, Fence, and we talked throughout the game as Dave would do, as you know, he'd talk to anybody. And um, it was a real thrill for me because I'd never talked to a major league player during a game. <laughs> and he kept telling me that he was going to win the game. Um, and sure enough, they put him in as a pinch runner uh, late in late innings. Uh, I believe it was in extra innings, although I'm not positive. And he stole second base and he scored on a single to put the go-ahead run in the game we ultimately won. And he saw me after the game and gave me the thumbs up and said, see, I told you I was going to do that. Uh, and it was oh, just no. typical day. Yeah, um, yeah. So I um, then went while I was um, in college, 
um, one of the things I did is I went and saw Bowie Kuhn in New York. I made an appointment with him, and I told him that I was going to be a major league executive. Would he see me? And he said yes. And sure enough, um, had a great visit with him, and he put me on to the minor league commissioner's office, which is then called the National Association. Very few people know the name of that group anymore because it doesn't exist. But um, one of the uh, people there sort of befriended myself and a friend that I had in Cleveland named Carl Fazio, and the two of us decided we would uh, try to forge our way into uh, baseball management by at a young age. So the two of us went down to the... Uh, How old were you then? Columbus. I was 20, 22. I, I was uh, in, then in business school at Stanford University, getting my MBA, all with the sole purpose of going into baseball. That's why I went to get an MBA because I felt that if I didn't get it quickly, I would go into baseball and never go back. So I wanted to get that behind me. And I um, was introduced to the people at the National Association who were sort of uh, intrigued by my idea. And they helped me find a franchise in my second year at Stanford, second and last, uh, in Twin Falls, Idaho. And we got a chance to, uh, my friend and I, run this minor league team. We bought it for a dollar. It was uh, a defunct team. And it was back in the day when they had something called League of Nations or Bastard Clubs, as they used to call them, when they needed an extra team in the league. And we got, we didn't have a main working agreement. The other uh, teams in the league were the Dodgers, Giants, Cubs, Angels, one other. And uh, those true? five teams That's fed true. us players. Playing a short season still? Short season A. Uh, our first game was on, I'll never forget, July, uh, June 17th, excuse me. And those are all the players that come out of college and high school. And wouldn't you know, on our team, we had Jerry Remy, who was uh, sent to us by the Angels because he wasn't their top prospect. So they sent him as a sec- an extra second baseman. He went on to a great career with um, the Red Sox. Yeah. And in the league that year was George Brett. So it was a really exciting year. This is the Pioneer League in um, yeah, absolutely. the West. So we have the Ma- Magic Valley Cowboys. And then uh, after that year, uh, we wanted to progress. So we went and bought a double A team in Elmira, New York, which was the Indians farm club. And it is um, a, a very different time now. But back then, you could, could do something crazy like this. And we bought that for 2500 bucks, double A team, which is worth considerably more these days. About the Eastern League? It was the Eastern League, right. Yeah. And uh, we had a, a wild experience there. Uh, we had a flood. Uh, Hurricane Agnes came through and put eight feet of water in the ballpark. We lost 23 games to the flood due to uh, the park being ruined. And um, we moved the team and halfway through the year to Waterbury, Connecticut. And then we finally were able to move back home. We were an Indians farm club that year. 
and we lost 96 games and finished way, way in last place. And we were pretty discouraged. We lost quite a bit of money. We paid off all our bills and moved to Cleveland. But in the process, I'd met a guy named Dan O'Brien at the National Association, who then became the general manager of the Texas Rangers that winter. And he called and said, um, we've got a lot of needs down here. We only have 17 people on the staff. If you can imagine the staff of a major, an entire major league staff. Of what year are we talking about? 1974. 74? And a guy named Brad Corbett had just bought the team from um, uh, Robert Short right. uh, when they had moved the team, of course, from um, – from Washington, D.C. And they had, um, it was just after the David Clyde year when they got David, they only had drawn 595,000 people. I was at that game. Were you at the David Clyde game? At the David Clyde game. It was in the early stages of my uh, uh, bromance with Mr. Nelson. And so uh, David got me tickets. It's the craziest, one of the crazy games there's some parallels because we'll go back to that, but so they didn't start the game. Were you, were you there at the time? I mean, were you, no, I was not. You know, the game you were at was the highlight of uh, Robert Short's Texas career. Uh, Ted Williams is the manager and everything went downhill from there. Cause Clyde, of course, was, should not have been in the major leagues and flamed up, but they did sell the stadium out. They did. And they waited about an hour for the game to start. They delayed the start of the game because the turnpike system in those days, and and they played at Turnpike Stadium, which was a minor league ballpark converted into the major league field for the uh, for the Rangers. And I was at SMU, so it wasn't very hard for me to get out to see the Rangers play, to visit with Nelly, to enjoy some of the uh, off season the next year. But here we are, David Clyde, Phenom, hyped up, and the newspapers comes and he walks the bases loaded. When he threw, finally threw a strike, he got a standing ovation. Now remember, this kid had been pitching in the high school in Houston, as I recall. He, he gets a standing O. He then strikes out the, the fourth hitter, gets a standing O, struck out the side with the bases loaded, didn't give up a run. And that game was one of the top ten games I've been to in the regular season baseball. Unbelievable. And, you know. The, the the sadness of David Clyde is nothing worse than Bob Short, you know, but anyway, uh, Clyde and different reasons. But it's interesting, Kip, because at the same time I was in, uh, when the Rangers moved out there, which was probably 72, maybe, I don't know, 70. I know Dave was, I met Dave in 73. But a buddy of mine in the fraternity, we wanted to get into baseball. You know, I was a huge baseball guy. I played baseball and watched from the bench in baseball. So we went, Dan O'Brien was the GM and they were hiring ushers. And we applied to be ushers figuring, well, that's a way to get into the Rangers organization. We didn't, we never, we we got turned down uh, to be ushers. And I always laughed at that, but Danny O'Brien was a hell of a GM and a, Seemed like well, a, you had a great story for him. My wife was an usher and she probably got the job you wanted. <laughs> well, God love her. That's great. She was from Fort Worth and um, that's how she started there. 
So the funny thing was, um, I got to Texas uh, to show you how different things were than Jamie in the in the major leagues. Dan called me and asked me if I'd like to interview for the job because he'd seen what we'd done in the um, Elmira and, and moving the team to Waterbury. He said, well, we really need some help down here. Would you come? But there's one stipulation for the interview. If you come, you have to take the job because we don't have enough money for two interview trips. <laughs> he wasn't kidding. Bob Short was absolutely broke. Yeah. And um, so was Brad Corbett starting out. So. I got the job, and uh, wouldn't you know that Dave Nelson, our friend, was the second baseman. And so in my first week there, I needed to find a place to live, and Dave says, I'll take you around and show you all the spots. And he did. He took us to Countrywood Apartments, among others, and said, this is where you should live uh, because it's close to the park, and um, there are nice people here. And wouldn't you know, I met my future wife, there because of Dave Nelson. Oh, that's and she was an usher. <laughs> so that's spectacular. That is, so that's how I met Dave. Wow, that is a great story. And um I know that uh Herzog came in to manage and then Martin came in to manage. How long did you stay with the Rangers? I was there for three years. I was the beneficiary of Billy Martin, as were many people. He came in and uh, did what Billy did. Um, yeah pump things up for a short period of time. And uh, he he was known to say that his job was to keep the six people who loved him away from the six people who detested him. And sure enough, that happened there. And um, after a while, he wore out his welcome. But in the meantime, he did a great job. And we had the most interesting roster. It's almost hard to believe. But in that one season, 1974, when we almost beat the Oakland A's and won the division. Then before wild cards and six people in the division, Oakland won it. But on our team were Billy Martin, manager of the year that year, Mike Hargrove, rookie of the year, Ferguson Jenkins, Cy Young Award winner, and Jeff Burroughs, the MVP. How do you like that? I I love it. I'm, I'm getting up because um... – Got to find what I just. I've got a picture that you'll love. Um, man, oh man, hold on! Don't go anywhere. This is live radio. <laughs> this is live. So I think you can. You see this? That looks to be Nelly with uh, Gaylord Perry. That's Dave with Gaylord Perry, and I've got another one uh, uh, with with uh, Fergie. And, and Dave, just like that. So, well, we had this fabulous season. We almost won it. All those great players. My first year in the major leagues, and I thought I was headed for a smooth sailing, wonderful career. I never got that close again in my entire major league career to anything close to a pennant or any success like we had that year. You know, that's because Nelly got hurt and then ended up with the Royals after that year. He did. And... um you know, he he just um, he had a good career, I think. He did, he did. So, you know, I'm a starving law student heading to the Marine Corps as soon as I get out of law school. Dave was making maybe, you probably know better than I, but when he got traded to the Royals, 
he had a, it was in the middle of a two year, $50,000 contract. But before that he didn't have a contract that was quite that high, even though he had 286 in 1973. So in the off season, we looked for cheap ways to entertain ourselves and the red apple lounge, which I'm sure you were familiar with yep, was where Dave said, Hey, look, you know, they have a great happy hour. Come on, drive on over. And so instead of going to the law library, I went over and so we're at the Red Apple Lounge chowing down on just gigantic chunk of cheddar cheese and a bottle of Boodle's gin. And in walks Billy. And he hadn't, you know, it was the off season and he wanted Dave's number. Dave was number one and Billy wanted, you know, Dave said, you know, I'm no problem. He can have it. And, and I said, well, let's go talk to Billy. I got some ideas on how you can improve your batting average. And of course, Dave goes, we aren't going anywhere near Nelly or, or Billy. And I said, okay. So we kept drinking and I knew David would have to go to the bathroom before I did. And as soon as he went in the bathroom, I made a beeline over to Billy. And now we'd both been drinking, but I was pretty much aware, you know, that you didn't want to piss off Billy. So I said, Mr. Martin, can I sit down? He goes, yeah. So we sat down and said, I'm a good friend of Dave Nelson's. And I think Whitey was great, but he needs to bunt more and steal more. And so Nelly comes out of the bathroom, he looks over there and he goes, oh my God, and gives it one of the old, you know, Dave looks. And I spent the next hour and a half, Billy dragged me in the bathroom while we had to go. The, it was a funny night, but uh, that was my Billy Martin, Martin experience. But those, as you know, those little beady eyes, man, you just didn't want to piss them off. No, he was, uh, he was special. Uh, very unique. He was. So Nelly in that, year you know made the all-star team and had a had a great run and a and uh unfortunately he and lenny randall crashed into each other but um the 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 part of the the locker room john was it Mako? who was the locker room joe Mako. joe Mako. i mean and then uh the trainer was a i don't know if the trainer was in law school bill gary nicholson but there was maybe he's a locker room attendant with Mako. Bill, somebody. Good Bill guy. Mil- Bill Milky. Milky. Great guy. You know, Nelly would make friends with, I mean, from me to Paul McCartney and everybody in between. As you know, he, he well, talked. I'm always to- privileged to say that I was one of Dave's best, 2000 best friends. <laughs> he had him everywhere. Yeah, he did. Uh, you, you were the you were the number one. I will say that. The uh, interestingly, you know, because of the military, and then I lived in Kansas City. You know, we got together a lot, but we there were a lot of uh, good friends. You being one of them, that I unfortunately you now there's some friends that I was glad I didn't get to mingle with. But um, I'm telling you what, Kip. It, it, and nobody thinks much is funny when you're in hospice, but when Dave was in hospice, um, two things struck me. Number one, people kept coming in that I had no idea who they were. And they all seemed to think that they were Dave's best friend, which is very (laughs) typical. And the other thing was, um, the brewers, you know, number one, they found this really nice place. Well, they, they got him into Friedert hospital. They found this great hospice facility and then near the end, 
they just came out in force, including Bob Euchre, who spent two days after the games uh, with Dave. And they, I tell people Dave had the f- most fun last day of his life anybody ever could because they just were so hilarious uh, for like hours. They were telling stories together and it was just fun to, I know Dave enjoyed having that, that opportunity to visit with, uh, with, with Euchre. I can't say enough good things about Bob Euchre. What a, what a guy. Well, Dave uh, engendered that kind of reaction from people and he deserved it. And um, it was nice that so many people responded to that. He's one of the, one of the finest human beings I've ever known. Um, I'd have, I'd have to agree with, uh, agree with that. Um, so, you know, we, my family owned the Omaha Royals and things were a little different. We didn't pay a dollar for the team and didn't sell it for a dollar, but the experience, um, you know, with, with the American association and the national association of professional baseball was, um, I loved it and met a lot of, a lot of good guys and, Jim Burris, who I'm sure you ran into at, at various meetings, who was the, you know, the roles that the owners and general managers played back then was fascinating because you weren't just, I mean, all we did was put on the show and then try not to go broke. But I mean, back in those days, I mean, you get a lot of guys like our agreement gave us the right to pick a manager, not that John Sherrills would ever let us do that. But I <laughs> You know, you've got some great experience in that. And from Texas, I know you stayed in professional baseball in other capacities. Why don't you catch me up on that? Well, I was uh, really privileged to have been in Texas uh, when Billy Martin was there because everything else that we were doing went well because the team was doing so well. And so I had the good fortune to be viewed as one of the seven or eight top marketing people in young ones in baseball when marketing was just arriving. Um, This is in the days of bat nights and jacket nights and cap nights and all that. This was all new. So we had brought this kind of mentality to baseball, a lot of uh, fun on-field activities, farm and ranch night. I remember asking Nolan Ryan if he would milk a cow, and he did. He came out for us and did it in between games. He, stuff you'd never do today. He probably but loved it. He's big, he did. He was great. So uh, because I had been um, viewed as a um, one of the up-and-coming marketing guys, in 1975 um, – the Seattle Mariners were awarded a team uh, franchise along with the Toronto Blue Jays in response to a lawsuit up there to solve the Seattle Pilots' uh, departure from Seattle, leaving the county with no tenant for its brand-new stadium. And to settle it, Seattle got a team. And Danny Kay, the entertainer, and five other local owners uh, started this franchise, and I was hired uh, to be the, in effect, the business manager of that team. And I was the third employee, I believe, maybe the fourth of the uh, entire franchise. And we had a year and a half to put that team together. 
in its entirety from the front office staff to the coaching, to the scouting, to putting a team on the field on an opening night, Diego Segui was our first pitcher. So I went up there um, to Seattle in 1976, spent a year and a half getting ready. And um, then about uh, two, a year and a half in, the guy who hired me had a nervous breakdown. And um, his name was Dick Vertlieb. He came from the NBA. He was the executive of the year um, for the uh, Golden State Warriors. Then what were they called then? Oh, the Warriors. They won the NBA championship, and he was the um, executive of the year, and he's from Seattle. So they hired a um, conquering executive hero to come up and make Seattle great. And the only problem was Dick didn't like baseball. So um, we uh, he, he had a difficult first couple of years, and I succeeded him as, the uh, in effect, the chief operating officer of that team at a pretty young age. 31, I believe. And um, I think until Theo Epstein came along that I was the youngest uh, team team president in, um, uh, in baseball. So I was able to achieve my goal. It took me uh, about eight or nine years, much faster than it should have happened. And frankly, I wished I'd had a few more years of experience before, uh, before reaching that point. Yeah. Well, that's a spectacular uh, meteoric rise to running a, a baseball team. And anybody that listens to this show knows that, you know, I'm just uh, uh, green with envy. What a spectacular uh, run in, in that. And I know the run wasn't over. I don't think, I think you continued your. Well, the, the, you have to know the other side of the story before you're too impressed because um the ownership was not financially prepared to see through the uh, difficulties of a early expansion team, which is really quite right. quite a difficult experience. Guy I used to work for in the NBA named Nick Maletti, who used to own the uh, Cavaliers, the first owner. He said, "War and expansion are both the same; they're both hell." And uh, it was really a difficult time. We had a very, very poor roster given to us and it took forever to get better. And you see the Mariners just this week finally made the playoffs again after 21 years. It's been a long haul up there, but the, what happened was our owners in the end had to sell the team to a guy named George Argerus in uh, California. And uh, he was a, uh, I believe he fancied himself sort of a modern-day Charlie Finley. So he came in, and uh, one thing led to another, and he didn't have much patience. He had a sign in the owner's box that said, patience is for losers. <laughs> and I said, George, that's not going to work. And he said, it will work, because I said it will work. Yeah. So I, so I uh, was the first of 23 people he fired. Because, and uh, I guess that, that's a badge of honor. But um, so that was in 1981, just five, four and a half years after I'd gone up there, five and a half after I'd gone up to start the franchise. Yeah. So that was the end of my Major League Baseball career because I then decided to do something else in my life. But it was a pretty great run. 
that's a neat run. That's a neat run. And I know that from time to time you've been uh, involved in different capacities with the Indians, at least uh, when they were called the Indians and, the, and now the Guardians is not only a fan, but but um, I'm not sure what other capacities you held with the Indians, but I, I know you did. Well, I was very involved in Cleveland and the building of the stadiums, uh, Gateway Corporation, it was called. I was head of the design and construction committee for both Jacobs Field and Gund Arena, which is now the uh, uh, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, and all on one piece of property. It's a pretty great thing for Cleveland, and I was very proud of it. But I was um, actually running a manufacturing business in Cleveland and worked a little bit for the Cleveland Browns um, on a consulting basis and just kept my hand in it. Basically, my, in my hotball guy. The um, so fast forward to this weekend, and I'm thinking, of course, uh, Dave was a coach with the Indians for a number of years, and then uh, part of the broadcast team with uh, Tom Hamilton. But I, but all of a sudden, I'm thinking, um, I hadn't talked to Kip for a long time, but the the Indians franchise slash the Guardians, and the you know when I was you know. Back in 1995, 96, 97, it was the Jake and things were hopping. And, you know, we went to every playoff game, 95, 96, 97, and winning and losing, snow in Cleveland. Uh, and then you head to Miami where it's 95 degrees and things didn't work so good. But, you know, I kept thinking they had the Eddie Murrays of the world. They had uh, Manny and they had Albert and they had uh, – all these sluggers and over the course of those three years. And I looked at the guardians and I'm going, and I'm, I'm really big on the inequity in major league baseball between some franchises and nobody's going to feel that more than the guardians and the $180 million discrepancy between their, their payroll and the Yankees payroll. But all of a sudden, I don't know why it dawned on me. I said, I drop Kip a note and tell him to have a good time. And you go, I'm going to the game. And and then it was a a, a spectacular game between two of the lower payroll teams and uh, some guy who almost ruined the, the Cubs fantasy in 2016 comes back uh, in 2022. And he's the hero of game one. And obviously that's mm-hmm. Ramirez. And then, you told me you're going out to the next game, which was maybe the longest scoreless playoff game in the history of playoffs. Uh, it was f- 15 innings, and we were there for every pitch. And Tell uh, me about the crowd. Well, you know, the, the crowd had to get excited about something. I've really never been in a crowd with nothing else to, to focus on. They got so excited about each pitch. Uh, you know, the if the pitcher got ahead in the count, it was an exciting moment because I think there were, there were 16 pitchers and the uh, strikeouts approached 30. It was a, a day where the shadows came in. It would be right. a tremendous advantage for the pitchers. Um, but it was a, it was a, an endurance contest. There was some great defense that's overlooked in the outcome of the game, which was a, obviously a walk-off home run by Oscar Gonzalez, which was great. But I'll never forget um, two or three defensive plays, and most notably the one Ramirez made going right. into the hole. I'm sorry, into the, uh, over the third baseline into f- 
foul territory and then throwing it across his body with not much on the throw. And a fabulous scoop at first by Josh Nay. Yes. They were one of the finest plays I've seen in the interview. You know, Brooks Robinson couldn't make that play. I mean, it was just a great – you're right. And then I, I think it bounced in, and then there was a challenge to see if Naylor had brought his foot off the bag. There uh, was, and I, it, to, to us, to the naked eye, it looked like he had it, and he did, but it wasn't by much. It was no, – uh, but I think in the um, – uh, I've Indians, Indians guardians have played, um, I believe about 30 playoff games in the history of that stadium since, um, 1994. Wow. And I've been to 29 of them and for wow. sure it was in the top five, that game. It was really special. Were we in the stadium together for game six of the 2016 world series? I'm assuming you were there. Oh, I was there. Game six. And you mean game seven, no? No, I unf- no. <laughs> so I, at that time, I had Cubs season tickets, uh, thanks to Dave, who, when he was broadcasting, you know, I, it was maybe even before that, he knew McDonough pretty well. And, and I think it was, pro- yeah, Dave had been there. It was the year of the... Um, Moises Alou play where the fan uh, reached up and grabbed the ball. Bartman. Bartman. And so uh, I called Dave after that and I said, you know, we were really having a hard time getting playoff tickets. Is there any way you could call somebody and put me on the list for season tickets? And he calls back and he said, I talked to McDonough and the ticket manager is going to call you and you've got four seats for as long as you want them in your name. And I go, wow, that's pretty cool. So had them for 20 years. And finally, after last year, I got so mad at Ricketts that we gave them up. But then my buddy said, Hey, you want 20 of my games? And I said, yeah, but anyway, so I promised my family, if we took the kids out of work and we all went to Cleveland for the game six, that I would not, pull a Uretsky and say, hey, I'm staying. I don't care what you guys do. Here are the car keys. To my word, I drove back to Chicago and watched game seven on uh, first on TV at, at Malinati's Pizza Parlor. And then we have a condo downtown Chicago and we went there. But again, Nelson weaves into my life all the time and probably yours. So and it's the reason I have this podcast because when Dave passed away, I didn't have anybody to, you know, we had divergent views. I, you know, I was a fan guy and Dave was a student of the game and Dave was always, you know, differing in his opinion from, from mine. But during the course of the game, I would call Dave and I go, did you see that call? What the hell is the umpire talking about though? You know? And so at some point while I'm talking to Dave, I rewound the TV so that I had a more accurate view to talk to Dave about, and I forgot to advance it. And so I get to an out in the ninth inning on my TV and fireworks start going off in the city of Chicago. I'm going, what the hell is that about? And my my wife goes, you fool. They won, and we haven't got to the end of the game because you moved it back to talk to Dave. <laughs> I missed the end of the game. Well, a really interesting connection with the uh, end of the 2016 series and the, and the Guardians win uh, in 15 innings. 
Corey Kluber was the starting pitcher for the Indians and gave up an opening uh, leadoff home run uh, to the Cubs in game seven. Wow. And so roll forward now. He's been one of the most revered pitchers in Cleveland and loved, a wonderful person. And his career has wound down a little bit. He's in the twilight, and he's in Tampa Bay, and he's pitched only as a starting pitcher, and he'd been injured, sort of a spot starter for the Rays. And they were down after using seven pitchers to not, no one left in the bullpen. They brought in Corey. And I'm sitting there in the 14th inning saying, oh, my God, it's Corey Kluber who gave up the home run in our last uh, playoff. To Hayward. It was Hayward. And, um, and sure enough, I, I had told my wife in the fifth inning, and this is not a joke, I said, Oscar Gonzalez is going to win this with a home run this game. And so every inning, every time he was up, I think seven times, she kept saying to me, is this the time? <laughs> and I, Of course, it was much later. But I just felt uh, Oscar Gonzalez was due. We've been watching him all year, and he's got great power, but he's been hitting more as a contact hitter. And sure enough, he came through. It was a, a nice moment. So. Man, oh, man, yeah. Like Kluber, for those people that don't know it, won two Cy Young Awards. I mean, this guy was a good pitcher. He's great, mate. And they, they just made one mistake. They threw a off-speed pitch to uh, Gonzalez, which he feasts on. I think the scouting report must not have been good because we all know that almost all of Gonzalez's home runs have been on off-speed pitches. And the second pitch he threw him was off-speed, and he hit it out. No doubt about it. I mean, he knew it. Everybody knew it when it left. So we all sort of felt a little bad for Corey Kluber. I actually said that, that it was so un it was like bittersweet watching him pitch because we liked him so much. Yeah. And we wanted him, we wanted the Guardians to win. And sure enough, we had a home run off him. So that's well, a good friend of mine, and I've had him on the podcast a bunch. He's kind enough during the offseason to uh to humor me a few times and uh, former Cub broadcaster and now the TV voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, Dwayne Stats. And I'm a I'm an announcer freak. Uh, there are like four or five announcers that I've listened to in my life that I think are you know are awesome. One is certainly Dwayne Stats. Another one right up there is Tom Hamilton and and Euchre. And there are a few other good ones, and there's some bad ones, but. It's funny when you were telling your story about, you know, when you knew that you wanted to do whatever you could to ready yourself to be in a position to get into professional baseball. Stats has a, a very parallel, interesting story from eighth grade when he um, wrote the broadcaster for the, uh, um, God, at that time they were the Colt 45s. Houston, yeah in Houston and he wrote um, and asked him if he could come down and, and, and meet him and visit with him because he wanted to be a broadcaster. And he grew up in a little town outside of St. Louis and he listened to the transistor radio, like I did with Bob Elson. And like, I'm sure you did back in those days when you, whatever at night you could pick up some of these distant radio waves. And so he went down to Houston and then, um, got a job at KMOX and the rest is history. I mean, it's just fascinating from eighth grade. He was trying to, uh, win the minor league. He was the, uh, broadcaster slash go out and get whatever he could sell with the, I think the, um, 
Oklahoma City uh, team, and so uh, which was then in the American Association. So great guy and really good broadcaster. But another thing that bugs me is the TV guys don't get to do the playoffs. It's just stupid. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous that 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 exists in baseball with our country. in Cleveland. Our great uh, TV announcers uh, are sitting on the sidelines on little. Um, uh, sideline shows because they're they're off duty yeah so which I think back in you know my younger days they would have the tv guys from the local team come in and do a few innings with joe Graziola or tony kubek or whoever it happened to be on the nbc coverage and then all of a sudden you know billion dollars worth of uh contracts lead to we'll have whoever the hell we want to have out there and if the ratings suck, we don't care because we're going to get the money anyway. I, I got a dim view of uh, the broadcast world right now when it comes to the playoffs, but I'm loving the playoffs. I love the new format. It was kind of a cool byproduct of the labor dispute. And so I'm all, I like the, the, the higher seed team gets the three home games for the playoffs. I, I thought that was good. And, uh, you know, I think aside from the disparity in the in the payrolls, um, it's exciting. So, I mean, I'm I'm pumped for the Padres. I think that's cool. I'm glad the Phillies beat the dreaded Cardinals. And uh, you know, life's good as a baseball fan. I think, and I'm looking forward to this week. That's really an interesting uh, change in the playoffs. What they've added is a, in effect, a fourth playoff round. Yes, a wild card round to win if you're uh, not one of the the four teams with buys to win, you have to win four playoff series. And, and if you step back and, and as long as you've been watching baseball and, and look, think about the difference from the day, the world series was the winner of a 10 team league uh, with other nine other teams that were sitting home. And we went straight to the world series for one seven game series. Wow. And now it's a endurance contest. And by the time we get to the world series, the winner, is unlikely to be the best team. It's just the team that had the best, uh, the pitching lined up properly and, and a lot of luck and um, injuries. And it's, it's an endurance contest. I haven't, I haven't checked this, but I think I heard one team and I think it was the guardians are going to have to beat three teams with one over a hundred games, maybe four teams that have a hundred games. If they get to the, to the final <laughs> rung. And Could be. When, when I was nine, and you would have been 12, not to give away our ages, um, the Chicago White Sox had a season-ending series with the Cleveland Indians, and Aparicio to Fox to Torgerson or to Klazuski ended the, ended the uh, year for the, for the Indians and made my year, uh, except for the fact that Minoso had been traded to the Indians that year, but that was a year when... You go and you play seven seven games, and uh, you know the tide turned like it does over the course of a month, only in the course of a week, because the White Sox won the first game against the Dodgers by probably ten years, lost the second game, and then went out to the West Coast, lost two out of three. And my dad took me to Game Six of the World Series, and we were in the upper deck in left field, and you could literally not see the left fielder who happened to be Al Smith at the time. That was the year he had the beer poured on him, wasn't it? Poured on him. And the, 
the city back then, you know, there was so much litter at the ballpark. They put up signs, help keep Chicago clean. And all you could see in that famous photograph was beer poured over Al Smith with the sign help. And uh, he, was, he was trying to make a catch, a good catch. And they poured beer right on his head. Yeah. At the, at the wall. What a great team, man. Oh man. And I watched more White Sox baseball that was so, um, God, they just couldn't, you know, from after Lopez to Stanky to Tanner, um, they just could never, you know, they were just bad. I saw, but they were fast. The games were two hours long, which I'm looking forward to next year with the new rules. What do you think of the new rules? Um, I am hopeful. I've been very, very worried on two fronts for Major League Baseball. One is the, um, you know, the, the, obsession with analytics as it's affected the strikes swinging for home runs and uh, more strikeouts being acceptable and less action. That's one. And two has been the time of the games. The, the players don't have a clue as to the impact of the length of the, that they are causing the games to take because yeah. they're being well paid and everything's fine. And they go in afterwards and have a big, a smorgasbord in the locker room and everything's good. In the meantime, all the fans tuned out hours ago and the kids today with social media and iPhones simply do not have time for this level of, uh, uh, you know, game times. So they, um, I'm hoping that the new rules, number one, will make the game shorter. They say that, it made uh, minor league baseball in some cases shorter by 25 minutes a game. Did I hear that? That's correct. And um, the, the I'm a fan of the uh, change on the shift. Yeah. We're not to hit the other way and just compensate, but I, it takes so much offense away from the game. I just don't think it's good. The, uh... I don't know how they're going to record the pitch clock and stop. Like if a pitcher throws the ball in the 17th second and the guy hits it out of the park for a home run, is it like, uh, uh, like in the NFL when the delay a game and they throw up and it doesn't count or. I, I think, I think they'll be very forgiving, but if it keep, moves the games along, I agree. it's going the, to be great. The, um, the rule thrown over to first base two times and only two times for a while. I'm thinking, well, how does that affect the base runner on the third time? Can you just take a lead of half the half the field, half the base path? And then I read a little bit more in detail. And if you throw over the third time and don't pick the guy off, he gets to go to second. If you do throw over and pick him off, he's out. So that that makes it a little. But it's going to be interesting to see how those go. Changing the subject, Nolan Ryan. Have you seen the? Uh, I think it's on Netflix called Facing Nolan. No, I have not. I'm telling you what, you need to because it was the era that you were so intimately involved in baseball. And it makes you and me, because for the folks' benefit out there, we have a video feed so I can see Kip and Kip can see me. And let me just tell you, you look great compared to the guys that were (laughs) Jerry Grody was talking, you know, they had all these guys through the court. It was a well-produced documentary. And he talked about uh, 
how they interviewed Nolan and go, you know, you hit a lot of batters. And he goes, yeah. And then his drawl, he, I just hit guys that hit homers against me or stole bases. And I can remember Dave and Dave's in probably in the top 20 of people that got hit a number of times by Nolan Ryan. And that list was published, but I can remember two stories Dave tells told so f- amusingly, and I'm sh- I guarantee you've heard them. But he gets hit by Nolan. The Angels are like beating the Rangers by, I don't know, eight or ten runs. And Nolan drills him in the ribs. And Dave finally gets his breath and he gets up off the ground. And he tells the story that he starts going to the mound. And the umpire thought, you know, there was going to be a confrontation. And Dave looks at him and goes, I don't fight anybody. He goes, he goes, Nolan, what were you doing? And Nolan <laughs> goes, that's for stealing second, third, and home against me in the minor leagues. <laughs> I, thought, uh, I thought that was good. And then uh, the, another, the other story, he, Hargrove was on deck, and Nelly gets drilled, and he can't breathe, and he, you know, he's going to have the seams on his ribs and everything. And Hargrove comes over to him, and he goes, Dave, Dave, get up. Don't let him know it hurts you. <laughs> well, if only Dave could do he, he gives you that look like, are you kidding me? Everybody. Oh, that's great. Uh, but uh, Dave, Dave did some fun things on the field. I remember in the 95 series against the Braves, he was the first base coach of the Indians. And there was a, a foul pop-up. Uh, Maddox was pitching. And Maddox um, tried to get the pop-up and went over and I believe dove for the ball and was a little bit winded and maybe a little bit uh, had, had the – win knocked out of him and Dave's the first base coach. So Maddox is trying to gather himself and Dave goes over and Maddox is on his knee and Dave is talking to him. This is before the trainer comes in. So our seats are right next to the uh, first base dugout front row where Dave used to entertain us during the game, including my kids. He would, I, I don't think any kids ever got more baseballs than ours because Dave would throw them to him constantly. I said to Dave afterwards, I said, what were you saying to Maddox? He said, I told him to just relax a minute. We're just going to sit here. I want you to be able to catch your breath. Uh, Good luck or something. Here he is. He's talking to the opponent. Yeah. But he just wanted to make him feel good and was helping Maddox gather himself. Only Dave would do that. Absolutely. So when Dave broadcast for the Cubs, uh, Starting in, uh, what would that have been, 1988, I guess, the first night game. Maddox was a rookie on that team, so I'm sure they uh, lived in the same building and got you know got to know each other. But yeah, Nelly, Nelly, um, there were pe- there there were five or ten people that made Dave's I don't like him list, but very few <laughs> and no women. <laughs> <laughs> he had no women that. I think 30 women expected him to marry him before he, before he passed away. But uh, <laughs> no, Dave, um, you know, he's coaching first base for the White Sox in 83. And this is when uh, the game of the week was on NBC with Costas and Graziola, I believe. Maybe Kubek. Anyway, Dave had clued them in that he was going to propose to uh, uh, the love of one of the loves of his life on national TV and did. And I, and, you know, I've gotten to know Reinstorf pretty well over the years. And I said, you know, 
is that why you guys fired him? And he goes, we didn't fire Dave. And I go, Jerry, LaRusso fired his ass. No, he didn't. I said, well, go talk to Tony. He's your manager now. Anyway, that was, you know, Nelly was always, um, he was a lover. You know, he loved people. And they loved him. He made a lot of people feel good about themselves and about baseball. He was a wonderful person. I, I think it probably hurt his image in the game. And I don't think, um, I think he made a little less progress because he was such a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, but. I would, uh, I, I would ask Reinsdorf, you know, he's an unbelievable student of the game and he'd make a great manager. And Reinsdorf goes, too nice. They never even got a chance to coach third, believe it or not. No, I know. They always just wanted him as a first base coach. Well, and he got fired on God Love Hargrove, but he got fired by Hargrove, LaRusa, and uh, Ned Yost. And um, all he did was produce base stealing wonders from, you know, Robbie Alomar to, uh, uh, to a host of other guys that, that um, God, he just, he just was a spectacular student, hardworking guy. But yeah, it did. The other thing, he didn't seem to like to party with the coaching staff and suck up to the manager, which I think hurt him. You're right. That's my analysis. All right, buddy. Got to watch Facing Nolan. It's a good documentary. It's about an hour long on Netflix. I've written it down. I'm going to watch it. You will love the contemporary baseball guys that are, that are in that, uh, that are interviewed from, uh, Grody all the way to Craig Biggio. So it's a good deal, but thank you very much for taking the time out today to, to, uh, uh, Brighton on the lighter side of baseball. It is, uh, it's a privilege to talk to you and, and, uh, catch up with you on not only the guardians, but the early part of your career, which I'm still green with envy. I don't care if you did get fired. Well, thanks for the um, wonderful opportunity to connect back with, um, our mutual friend. It's uh, He's not with us anymore, but he is. So thank you. He is indeed. Ah, ah, ah.